welcome to The C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about hazards. I'm Jenna Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Right, ladies, today's topic is danger, danger. And also, this is the first episode of season two. Welcome to season Yay. two. Oh, yeah. Did you miss us? We weren't gone for that long. <laughs> 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 uh, um, yeah, so season two. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, yeah. We've got a lot of really good episodes lined up for this season. Yes, we're, we're quite, we're quite keen, actually. We're quite kind of itching mm. to do some of them. We're like, ah, oh, why are we recording that now? Because well, we're recording this one and it's yes. just as good. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's also brilliant. And uh, we hope you enjoy it. Uh, yeah, today's topic is uh, danger, danger, hazards, basically. Um, ladies, uh, Ashley, first, we will do some news, I just remembered. Uh, does anyone have any news? I have uh, news. If you're a member of Icon, you may have seen an email that came out recently um, saying that there are still places at the Health and Safety for Conservators courses, which ties in very nicely with today's episode. Oh, indeed. Uh, So they are running in Edinburgh on the 11th of October, in Birmingham on the 20th of October, and in London on the 21st of October. Um, They're run by Martin Adlam, who's a health and safety consultant, um, and they'll basically give you loads of really useful health and safety information uh, for conservators who are working in a conservation studio or on site. Um, So I hope that there may still be places by the time this goes out. I don't know. We're recording this on the 6th of August, but uh, just a heads up about those courses coming up. Yes, absolutely. And uh, Christine and I have both have experience of uh, kind of working with Martin. So uh, mm-hmm. I personally, I'd really recommend any of his courses. He's good. Yeah, that's a brilliant piece of news. Um, another piece of news is that the next Icon conference, which will be in 2019, has uh, been announced to be in Belfast this time. So it's Northern Ireland next time. So uh, we don't have dates yet or anything like that or confirmed venues, but we do have a geographical location and that is pretty good. Do we have a topic? I don't think so. I didn't notice no, anything. Yeah. So I think it's just that it's going to be Northern Ireland this time, mm. which is fine. So start saving up if you're not in Northern Ireland, basically. <laughs> and another thing that happened over summer was that the 40th anniversary issue, uh, the special issue of the Journal of the Institute of Conservation came out. And it's entitled The Future of Conservation. It's a very grand title, I thought. It, it is very grand. Uh, it is worth a read, though. It's interesting stuff. Anyone else? No? Uh, in that case, let's power on. Hazards. Oh, who's going to have a first stab at this one? So I feel like in the sort of research and reading that I did for this and thinking about it, I saw two types of hazards that we face. Um, and I think originally I was thinking, well... It's hazards in collections because that's the experience that I've had before uh, working with a science collection and that's sort of, you know, I think of it very much in those terms. But I think that other uh, other hosts um, have spoken to people that have a much more, you know, uh, vocational idea of the hazards that we face. So there's hazards in collections and then there's the hazards we face doing the things that we do, chemical hazards and health and safety mm. work. Um, so I suppose, what 
what do we what have we encountered before god yeah okay so that's an interesting one i guess if we're talking hazards in collections i feel like uh i've worked i've worked in the vicinity of radioactive things but i haven't necessarily dealt with it very much i don't feel very confident in dealing with it as a topic and i would really love to get a geiger counter that is one of my dream things. <laughs> I'd love a Geiger counter. They're not expensive, actually. Yeah, but the thing is, I don't know what kind to get. There's no actual... I don't feel like there's all that much out there in terms of recommendations or um, even any kind of guidelines. It's just kind of, do you want to get a Geiger counter? Well, good luck. <laughs> oh, so I, I know someone who has done a lot of research into uh, how to manage her own collection the, the radioactives in objects in her own collection and um she found out loads and loads of stuff about it but it, it involved putting together information from lots of different places there wasn't anything out there and she was considering writing up something oh god i hope um, she does specifically aimed at conservators which might well um cover things like what kind of geiger counter should you get and um you know how should you store these things what are your statutory responsibilities when you're looking after these objects uh, what are your reports responsibilities that kind of thing so yeah I, if next time i see her i will say that she has to do this yes <laughs> please do because that would be really interesting no i was going to say i think one of the things she also sort of felt was that there were quite a lot of people she spoke to who didn't have a big uh, sort of significant number of radioactive objects in their collections they maybe only had one or two um, maybe sort of a watch with um fluorescent uh, radium paint mm. on the dial or that kind of thing or, yeah. or a kind of random mineral sample yeah. uh, that was radioactive that kind of thing and it, and it was really kind of very much a one-off object so what do you do when you don't actually have very many things yeah um, well so what i was going to say is in one of my old museums we only had a few objects and a neighboring museum only had a few objects so we actually came to an arrangement to store them on the same site and they kind of pooled their storage and their responsibility for it and that meant that two quite small museums were able to manage this in a much more efficient way. Oh, that's so. That's nice. always an option with hazards. Yeah, yeah. That's. A, I think that is a really nice one for um, small museums, particularly because, well, when you're in a, in your close proximity to each other, because otherwise it is a bit of a, you know, God, what do we do if something has to be isolated? Um, I'm interested that this is this the first hazard that we're talking about because. Of the hazards that I've worked with, I feel like this is the one that I am sort of least concerned with and least I've 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 seen least of. And I think that's probably because the science collection I worked with, the the person who was already there had already done all of the work involving isolating radioactive objects. Um, and in that case, they were just sent off site, I believe. That's the same kind of thing, collaborating with other sites for a, a, a sort of big master storage though um, does that have implications to the strength of the radioactive uh, radioactive source then if you're increasing yeah because if you put more things in one place it adds up yeah and you're only allowed so much uh, radioactivity if you like but they uh, sort of they decided that they had a allowance i'm not entirely sure how it works but they had an allowance that was kind of in common between the two museums i think so they kind of you know shared it between themselves mm. um i don't know quite who sort of sets these limits but i i, I guess why this came up came up in my mind first is that it was because it's something um uh, that i know that 
loads of people that aren't really aware even that they could have anything radioactive so it's something that i vaguely think about and then i think how do i solve that problem how do i check and the answer there tends to be well you either get someone in to do it or you get a geiger counter and for me it seems much more appropriate to get a geiger counter except that's where i kind of hit hit uh, a kind of wall with what do i get but something that really intrigued me was that they now do little geiger counter things to plug into your smartphone they, and stuff like that what? that's amazing yes. but the thing is i don't know how accurate they are oh. and i kind of want someone to go away and test all these because they're about yeah. 30 quid each um which is sometimes cheaper than a geiger counter i mean it is but well it's cheap as a as an option for testing your radioactivity and expensive as a waste of money if it doesn't work <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly so i kind of wanted someone to go away and uh, and do like a little um kind of survey of how accurate these things are so there we go there's a there's a project idea for anyone wanting to yeah wanting any, to do something on radioactivity yeah any uh, phd students free idea listening? there you yeah. go <laughs> have a go so anyway that's why that cropped up first but obviously there are much more common hazards in our i suppose that's that's a good example because it um brings up the concept of uh, knowledge and expertise in hazards in general so Obviously, we are. We've picked the first one, the first topic of hazards in collections, and I think quite a lot of conservators don't set out thinking I will approach hazards in my work. It's more something that you kind of slowly learn about over time. First, I imagine you know you start thinking, oh yes, there's so, oh okay, so pesticides in collections, and then you know you work in a in a various historical museums and say, okay, radioactivity, and then oh asbestos. Oh, look, there's some mercury. Oh, okay, so there's this type of oil that can kill you. Okay, and then it kind of increases and increases. And if the knowledge and education support doesn't increase at the same time, you're just going to be terrified because there's all sorts of things out there. Yeah, so that's an interesting one. How do you communicate risk without also freaking everyone out? Because that is... Oh, Chloe! Yeah. <laughs> now! <laughs> Uh, so I did my dissertation on the communication of hazards in collections, um, particularly thinking about pesticides because I did my internship um, in a, an ethnographic museum and pesticides there is it's one of the things you sort of grow to grow to I wasn't I was going to say grow to love but you certainly don't do that you grow to know that there will be pesticides on your on your collections you know if it looks undamaged it's probably poisonous so I was looking at the different types of um, communication method and also how people perceive risk on a sort of psychological level and that was really interesting because basically it has a lot to do with the um, sort of preconceived ideas of what does carcinogenic mean and what does toxic mean and I think that has been relevant in how I've talked to others about risks um, and hazards in collections. So in, in uh, recently this week, I delivered some training and the training that I was actually doing was I was communicating that this is why we wear gloves. And I used the words arsenic as an example of one of the, the residues that could be on objects. And of course, that it was a particular age group of people and that had a very sort of sensational effect on how they understood that as a as a hazard um, and because it was training I was able to sort of talk them down in a way of, of saying well don't worry it's absolutely fine because there's such small quantities so in a conversational way it was I could provide them with more information um, but had I just sort of presented them with 
a label or a hazard label of contains arsenic or something, that is something that would be sort of a, a detrimental level of a perception of risk. If you see what I mean, you'd get people actually being frightened. Yeah, I think, yeah. So I think the problem I have is that people tend to be freaked out if you tell them there is any kind of hazard associated with an object. Well, either that or they don't believe you. It kind of goes both ways. <laughs> it's like, no, I can't see anything on this object. So clearly it has nothing on it, for example. Which yeah, I found that a lot with um, with asbestos, that people, if you either have people who go, oh, asbestos is fine, or you go, or you have people that really sort of essentially freak out or what do you mean this object has asbestos in it yeah but don't worry it's not it's it's enclosed it's fine it's perfectly safe what do you mean it has asbestos in it and think oh if you don't disturb it it's fine you know it's it's one of these you know we have a lot of words and a small amount of knowledge about hazards but that can actually just be more scary than having all of the information I think that's what I've learned in a, having a, in a working in a science collection it's yes there are loads of of scary things like the first time that I had to deal with mercury for example I was terrified but actually as soon as I saw the way that mercury behaved and I had it in an enclosed environment and it was perfectly safe and I had all the kit and the gloves and the everything it's actually you know quite as it has hazards go it's quite safe you know it, it behaves in a certain way you can predict it there are ways to clean it up and everything so now I've had that experience I'm not I'm not so frightened um, but before I was, you know, oh, I'm going to need some help, please. I'm frightened and I don't understand. So I think generally work, providing yourself with as much information about a certain thing is going to comfort you. And if you have to look after your collection as equal, you can't just, <laughs> you've got to deal with it essentially. As long as you feel safe, then, you you know, the best way to deal with it is to arm yourself with information and PPE. You say you've got to deal with it, but actually there's a limit to what you can reasonably be expected to deal with and I think that's a really important point to make to conservators as well is that yes you're responsible for looking after your collection but it's also unfair of your employer to expect you to do anything that seriously puts your health and well-being Absolutely. at risk um, and yes you can use PPE and you can take mitigating measures and so on but there is also a point where you should be able to say actually no I really don't feel comfortable doing this Absolutely. And I think a lot of um, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, just as long as you know, it's fine. But part of the knowledge is knowing the outside sources of information and support that there are. Um, so for asbestos, you've got um, CADEC and other um, asbestos survey people that do work a lot with museums. And they mitigate asbestos as in that they contain it, they clean it up, or they they identify it and say, no, this is uh, this is hazardous. There is nothing you can do about it. And I have heard before some institutions, some museums, wanting their conservators to train in the mitigation of asbestos. And I'm not happy with that because essentially pay levels. You know, we're not we're not paid enough to shorten our lives, um, and it's not it's not sort of what we signed up for but if you work in if you work in a um asbestos mitigation company then that's you know you have the training you have the the income as it were you have the pay and it's sort of what you signed up for in terms of other things like mercury i don't i suppose it is absolutely everyone should feel that they can and they should be able to say i'm not happy with dealing with this 
Um, and there have been instances where I've said, I've, I'm a bit frightened of this, actually. But I'm not sure what what the, the approach would be then if if you've essentially, you've got to clean up the hazard or you've got to separate the hazard. Other than asbestos, I don't know the support networks that there are. I guess I, I've worked in two different science museums um, or museums with scientific collections. And one of them in particular had a lot of... Uh, objects relating to the history of science um so those actually presented more hazards than you might get in more modern objects but there were things like um one of the things i was most scared of dealing with was a very very fragile thin glass bulb full of chlorine gas what um and they essentially said to us okay you know clean this thing but if you drop it run Um, and well, in retrospect, I'm really, really, really unhappy with that as a as as a health and safety strategy. That's um, terrifying. I was going to say the other thing that came to mind is that then there's a kind of difference between these sorts of acute risks, like um, loose mercury or chlorine gas in your lab or whatever, um, and the sort of more insidious long term risks that you face which we tend to kind of write off so you know just kind of cumulative use of chemicals and solvents for cleaning Mm. and that sort of thing where the risk in itself is quite low but the cumulative risk might actually pose a health hazard and i think that's something we're really bad at understanding as a profession yeah and that has a lot of uh, has a really strong impact actually on people's perception of risks um psychologically if you if it's a sort of long drawn out uncertain kind of far away in the future type risk it's it's seen as sort of it's scary because it's unknown but it's also it's you know oh that's going to happen to you know the version of me in the future or you know it's probably not going to happen to me kind of thing i'm interested in how the the fact that we know different risks that we know affect how we feel about them because i'm particularly frightened of the idea of biological hazards because i've not really ever had to deal with them so i mean it you say oh how confident am i in fixing cleaning this and not breaking it well i don't think we can ever be 100 percent confident in not breaking something can we because you know that's conservators interact with objects that's the point you know we're the people who if we're going to handle something with and attend to essentially test how it operates can we remove this from this rack we're the people that will be breaking something yeah i mean it's a classic risk assessment then though isn't it where you're weighing up the likelihood of an adverse event yeah. and then the severity of the event if it does actually happen and so i guess something like that is extremely unlikely i don't even know how you assess the severity but chloe you said you haven't had to deal with biological hazards but you must have cleaned mold off things yeah yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay i i have i have i suppose yeah See, we get down to the familiarity again, though. I'm more used to mould, so I don't find it so scary. And I find that, you know, I'm more used to the idea of, oh, you use extraction or a vacuum. And if you need to, you wear a a Tyvek suit and then you're fine, you know. But in terms of microbes and things that could transfer you know viruses or bacteria or, or something like that that's sort of that's so un that's so unknown and that's difficult to see as well and i think it's it's also something that you know when when we talk about collections hazards it's not one that immediately springs to mind because 
particularly in certain museums, we're used to thinking about radioactivity or asbestos or, you know, mercury. There's, there's or pesticides, indeed. There's, there's a sort of set number. And I'd say things like biological hazards and uh, sort of compressed air, they're common, but they're not so, they're not so well known. I'm also completely unfamiliar with firearms and explosives and things like that. I'm that's an interesting one because uh, yeah, uh, I am in that position. <laughs> uh, are you Jenny? <laughs> without without mentioning any names. Uh, uh, yes, I now look after a regimental collection as well as social history and archaeology and all the other stuff. So um, that was that was a bit of an interesting one to come into. Actually, I recently went on a conference which was organised by the Collections Care Group in Icon. Uh, anyway, it was a lovely day at Leeds Armouries and it was called uh, Bite the Bullet. Basically, it was all about what on earth do you do when you have weapons in your collection. Uh, it was a brilliant day. We'll see if they ever repeat it, but it was really good. So if you know anyone who, who went, uh, ask, ask to steal their notes or something because <laughs> it was really useful. Uh, it did have really good attendance there probably at least 60 people there it was it was it was a really nice day and in fact i interviewed two people from that who were speakers on that day and who are conservatives should we listen to that yeah i'm here with what i would like to call two experts two conservatives from uh, the royal armories would you like to introduce yourselves yes of course um my name is lauren mcgee um and, and i'm ellie roley conway so um i was going to start with uh, what's your conservation background like and how did you come to work at a place like the armories um well i guess i'll go first um so i started off um getting a job with the national trust as a conservation assistant um and i think despite having done an archaeology degree i wasn't really sure i didn't really know about conservation until i had that that job um so i did the uh, durham university course um uh, in conservation and uh, that's actually where I met Lauren. So we actually trained together at the same time. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we've known each other a long time. But uh, then we uh, went our separate ways for our um, uh, placements. I got to go to Colonial Williamsburg. Um, and I did a little bit, a tiny bit of armour there, but a bit really small amount. Um, and then when I came back, I had a very short internship at the Wallace Collection. And that was the first time I think I must have worked on a firearm. And um, and then I happened to know a couple of people who worked here and basically they needed someone to do a three month contract at really short notice. And I was out of work at the time. So I, I jumped to the chance. And then it's been about four and a half years later and I'm, I'm actually still here. So <laughs> well, <lucky. laughs> that's how I came to the armories. And uh, I've just never left. <laughs> um, and uh, I did an archaeology degree as well. And then ended up becoming interested in conservation when I was volunteering at the Bose Museum. Um, and then I, my first job out of Durham University was, um, as you probably know, Jenny, working at uh, Rotherham. Yeah. Um, <laughs> based at Clifton Park Museum. And um, so I was there for two years and then a post came up at the armories. Um, so I started September 2014 and I've been here since as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, lovely. So uh, how long have you both been working with particularly firearms, like uh, in terms of conserving and working with them? 
I suppose technically for me, it would be about five years because obviously we did have, you know, the firearms at at Rotherham, Mm -hmm. but I would say I've been far more comfortable with working with them since I've been at the armories and perhaps doing more um, interventive treatments in that time. I think I'm probably similar. It's been about five years as well. So as I said before, the first time I I really worked on a firearm was at the Wallace collection. Um, But again, I didn't go that far into the sort of dismantling of it. I only did a little bit of that. And it's since I've been here um, that I've really learned and sort of become more familiar and more comfortable with actually dismantling them for treatments and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it must help that you guys must have a pool of knowledge to kind of draw upon as a part of your bigger team. Uh, so you feel Absolutely. presumably feel a bit more comfortable. You know, you have someone to ask. Definitely. Um, we have um, three firearms curators here, yes. um, as well as a technical firearms manager. So and they're very approachable in terms of not just technical information, but the history of something, whether a coating might be original or a later edition because they would know about the manufacture of that piece. So it's yeah. really helpful. Yeah, we have a really good library here as well. And the curators have built up a really good um, sort of resource of different manuals for um, various different firearms as well. So we quite often we can look up first um, the manufacturer sort of guidelines about how to dismantle them. So that's really helpful as well. Oh, yes, that's amazing. I have such knowledge envy right now. <laughs> it's funny though because we come across something new and we still have that moment of going oh no what do we do with this one so could you tell me about about the range of firearms that you deal with as part of your jobs pretty much everything isn't yeah it, it is so yeah the royal armories is a an institution covers um three sites the site here in leeds um we've got the white tower at the tower of london and then fort nelson in portsmouth and between the three we have everything from um historical firearms that the earliest types yeah, right hand through, cannons. yeah yeah right through to the most modern pieces down at Fort Nelson, Matt Hancock, our conservator there, is a specialist in artillery. So he does the kind of big guns, as it were. And um, we work on, on pretty much everything else. Yeah. yeah. So we have yeah all sorts of historic and we're still um, acquiring things now. Um, we actually, as part of the Royal Armouries, we have the um, MOD Pattern Room Collection, mm. which makes it the National Firearms Centre, which is kind of a collection within our collection. So every um, uh, every time they, they had a new um, weapon that they came up with, um, even the experimental ones as well, they'd send the pattern out to the factories to be made. And they've always kept one of those patterns back. So we've got all of the sort of MOD, um, everything they've ever made. Um, we have a, a copy of that, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, and we still, and as I said, we still acquire stuff now. So we have a lot of very modern stuff as well. Um, for our, We do have a working collection as well. And um, our technical firearms manager works on that. So he's very, um, he's very good with the more modern stuff. So he's a really great resource as well. If we're working on um, similar objects, that aren't in the working collection they're actually still the museum pieces as well Mm. and um because we also acquire things um increasingly from film and television we have some quite quirky pieces like the pulse rifle from aliens (laughs) (laughs) that's that's the kind of stuff that you don't really think about being collected that's amazing (laughs) 
it's um, yeah we, that's sort of a, a newer project that we have isn't it called collecting cultures and uh, that's thrown up some kind of weird and wonderful things hasn't it really yes and uh, been quite interesting <laughs> that's amazing I love that now, that's an exhibition in and of itself isn't it <laughs> I think so, exactly yeah. <laughs> so I, I think when conservators are confronted with having weapons in their collection especially firearms I think the major fear is that is it live is it going to go off but I mean aside from a firearm going off what what would you say the major hazards are when working with a firearms collection most because they're dynamic objects most of them do have parts under pressure even if it's not directly linked to the firing mechanism Mm. so you do have to be careful where you put your hands um some of them are very heavy yes yeah and sometimes if you're if you're moving the mechanism um so for example like if you accidentally dry fired the weapon if it's a historic flintlock um if you had your hand in the way of where the flint actually comes down like that you get quite a nasty and quite painful yes (laughs) yeah but yeah weight is another thing um some of them are really heavy and um and also they can be quite unbalanced as well so you have to be careful sort of how you pick them up even you know not just how heavy they are as well um and then i would say firearms are quite a common source if that's the right word for for other types of hazards um Mm. we find asbestos in a lot of our machine guns and submachine guns because of its it was used for its heat resistant properties mostly mm. um and also uh radioactive sources like um yes. you find radium paint on gun sites for example so um just quite a lot to be aware of actually i know i know it sounds frightening but <laughs> it's really okay <laughs> it's fine really <laughs> So speaking of that, what's where's a good place to go for advice and recommendations if you are kind of alone with a firearms collection? Where can you go to seek some support? Well, I mean, obviously the Royal Armouries. Uh, yes. we, we like to think that we uh, we can give good advice and we're always happy to help out. So um, specifically for conservation advice, obviously we're always available and happy to answer people's queries. Um, but also, I mean, there's there's other um, places that have big firearm collections that they're used to dealing with. You know, just a couple of examples, Imperial War Museum, I'm, I'm sure they can give you a lot of advice as well. Um, and the Wallace Collection yes. as well, for the more historic firearms, they've got quite a few. National Army Museum. Yeah, yeah. so there, there's lots of big firearms firearms collections out there um, where you can sort of go to people for advice if you just don't know where to start and things. And, and then at the museum here, I mean, aside from us, there are our curators who yeah. could give advice, our registrars who are great on the legalities and kind of moving and packing um transport and then we also have um technicians here who are used to making custom mounts and storage solutions we're always happy to to help (laughs) yeah and of course um you know you'll always have in your region you'll have a, a local firearms liaison officer so always go to them for legal issues as well and i'm sure they can link you up to people who who know a bit more about firearms as well Mm, that's fantastic. So how would you go about contacting that liaison person? Like, where do you go to look for that person? I think, I suppose you'd have to go through the police. Um, mm. Our registrar deals with all of that. So I can't say that we know for sure ourselves, but they are um, they are part of the police force, aren't they? Yes, so yeah. I, I would contact your local police station and say, who, who should I get in contact with about that? Oh, um, and they, they usually 
quite interested in what we're doing actually because it's different it's from what else they're looking yeah. at yeah. <laughs> and they might come across considerably older firearms than they yes, <laughs> exactly. normally see yeah that's true that's a good point what's one piece of advice that you'd like to give to conservatives who aren't necessarily very familiar with firearms but do have them in their collection i mean i think we'd like to say don't be frightened of them obviously you know take them seriously but don't sort of be bullied by someone who who thinks they know more about firearms than you because although it is a firearm at the end of the day it's a museum object and that's that's how you should be dealing with it and it's a composite object so you can look at the materials that it's made from and and as a conservator you'll be familiar with those and just think well I'll treat this as I would something else made of those materials but taking into account the ethical dimension and you know those moving parts that we mentioned yeah Um, yeah but don't be frightened they're not all that scary (laughs) that's a really good piece of advice and really nice to hear as well (laughs) so we still get faced with firearms that we kind of might be vaguely familiar or similar to one that we've done before but they're all so individual as well that you you can't ever be that familiar with all of them so you just kind of have to go into it knowing that there might be some surprises but it'll all be okay in the end and don't don't be afraid to ask for help (laughs) yeah exactly yeah oh that's really good do you have any recommendations for uh any kind of training that might be provided for conservatives dealing with this sort of thing um I'm not sure, really. I mean, I think we'd like to do roll out a bit more training, probably. And I know, you know, our registrar's department would quite like to do a bit more, wouldn't they? Yes. I think moving forward, um, because we have a newly formed collection services department, um, it probably will be something that we will be offering here. Um, But icon linked events are always worth keeping an eye out for as well. It doesn't seem to be that much specifically looking at firearms at the moment so I think that is an area that's lacking which well hopefully we can mm. moving forward we can try and uh, sort that out really yeah yes. <laughs> oh that, that that would be a good one keep us up to date <laughs> of course <laughs> thank you both so much for joining us today that's okay it's yeah. been fun <laughs> thank you so I was I hadn't obviously because I have no experience in firearms I was interested I thought well uh, yeah explosives are dangerous you don't want them to you know don't want to set fire to them but I hadn't think, thought it as far as the mechanism being dangerous in itself and parts under pressure and that sort of element of it because that's that's a much more this could chop your fingers off type I hadn't thought about yeah it is interesting because uh, things that I'd thought of because I have now handled some weapons uh, is wow they are heavier than they look and what happens if this goes off or indeed is this a live weapon how do I tell <laughs> um, how do you tell well if it's been deactivated it will have a special mark on it uh, depending on oh. where it was done um, so it will have a special mark on it somewhere uh, you can look that up um, but deactivated weapons will always be marked if it does not have a deactivation mark, you are holding a live weapon, or at least you're very likely to be holding a live weapon. So that's something to be aware of, uh, which I wasn't previously. So at least that helps, you know, it gives me a clue what to look out for, which is good. I, I found it quite reassuring that they that there is information out there and there is help and, and even things like talking to the police, which I hadn't yeah. thought about as an option. No, indeed. Uh, I didn't know that these firearm liaison officers existed uh, until that point. So it makes me extremely happy that there's someone I can approach with questions because, of course, there are 
you know, legal repercussions of how you store your firearms, what you do with them, that sort of thing. Because it's a firearm. I think it's worth saying that all of the hazards that you might consider, obviously, I think we can cover all of them here because that would that would essentially just be a slightly tedious, terrifying list of all the ways you can die <laughs> yeah, as yeah. a conservator. Um, but there is a lot of information out there at the moment in terms of hazard awareness and hazard mitigation and things um contacting um the science museum group their collections care department they are of course well up on knowing how to deal with collections hazards because they approach all of them and there are other institutions as well people who manage them even if you just google collections hazards or a particular type of hazard you will find information sheets um, from recognized bodies that you can rely on and then they will have bibliographies and stuff so there is information out there um and i just want to say that in relation to contacting the police um i feel like there's a there's a sort of ethical is there an ethical issue tied up in all of this as well that obviously you can get a firearm deactivated and that the the communicating with the police is essentially just so that they can help you and you're being all above board um but you also have to or it's also advised to contact the police if you find um controlled drugs in your collection um and again, this isn't something that I considered before working with the science collection. Um, and then we, you know, in in one part of my previous life, um, I we have found controlled drugs in an object or in relation to an object. So that is either past medicines or part of certain first aid kits and things like that. Basically, any pills could potentially be a controlled drug and then um as far as i know the the approach to that is hand it to the police and then they will dispose of it um because it's obviously dangerous to have these things in the collections because of theft and you know all sorts of legal reasons and ramifications etc etc you can't just like take bits of your collection out and give them to the police this is what i'm saying yeah yeah so Not there's, there's does, an interesting. It does have a lot of paperwork. Yeah, there's an interesting, um, and I I don't know how this is approached by um, documentation and registrars and and that level of it. But if your object, if your accessioned object, is a packet of pills, what happens to that object? Do you, I'm, I imagine it? You have to um, categorize it as disposed of. In particular, I suppose also objects that are made of asbestos, like you know. <laughs> Here's this fire blanket. Oh, it looks a bit white and fluffy. There's and there's essentially no way you can't make con- a c- pack of controlled drugs safer, and you can't make an asbestos fire blanket safer. So the approach is essentially you have to dispose of it. And then there's a sort of ethical. I I, I don't know how much we've sort of had the freedom to discuss the ethical guidelines around that because it's a matter of it's essentially a matter of life and death it's safety well this is actually also a thing that comes up with firearms because if you deactivate a firearm you are essentially destroying a part of the object so what you're doing is Mm. you're not just uh, removing a tiny part it tends to be a bit more involved than that so what you're doing is you're significantly altering the object and it is no longer a firearm once it's been deactivated so is that ethical now so this is something that different Uh, for example military collections in the UK handle differently so some of them will deactivate as a matter of course because 
they want to reduce that risk. And in other museums, uh, they are kept as firearms, but they will do other things to mitigate the risk. Uh, so things like having extra secure cases and more security and that sort of thing. Much like with any other hazard, it's not always the right option to say deactivate a firearm because then it is you are fundamentally changing it. So there's an ethical discussion to have again about what what the purpose of the object is, etc. I would be interested to hear of the non-destruction methods of dealing with high-level asbestos or high-level control drug or, or other content in objects that would allow people in museums to not throw stuff away essentially well for asbestos for example is usually sealing it in in some capacity but in that way if it's it's sealed in you can't look at it you can't you can't open it or use it for research then again then what's the yeah what's the purpose of it and i suppose maybe there's some room for a development there of i suppose sealed in displays cases There's, there's definitely room for a safer way of of keeping retaining these objects otherwise you end up with a whole classes of objects completely missing mm, from quite. our collections this is my concern yeah for example gas masks which frequently contain asbestos most of the time i feel like people definitely panic and get rid of them uh, which can be a valid thing but at the same time we can't get rid of every single gas mask ever because then we have no gas masks they can be dealt with very easily though oh yeah they, they no, can I, I really know. easily get Kadek to look at them they'll sort it out for you it does cost and there we get into another yeah <laughs> another issue of what do you do if you're a museum with no funds at all and you you know open a door to a huge asbestos collection or a huge whatever collection and the appropriate behavior is to pay someone to handle it for you and you can't i imagine are there funding bodies to approach for that is that is this something that people could get funding for I don't know. I've never seen anything out there that deals specifically with that sort of thing. Again, conservation grants in and of themselves can be kind of thin on the ground. So chemicals, I think, is a is a was something that we are so used. To. I think we're in too deep as as conservators quite a lot of the time. We forget that actually we're in contact with hazards all the time, even if we're in the most uh, safe museum collection that you can think of. Yeah, that's true. We do use an awful lot of stuff and uh, having to do the kind of cosh sheets for every single chemical that I use, it, it's a refreshingly terrifying practice um, to just remind yourself that, yeah, actually, these things aren't very nice, so I should be in the fume cupboard or I should take a bit of extra care. Because it's an interesting one when you get used to something, it's easy to relax the rules for yourself and forget. Or maybe you just accept the risk and go, oh, it's fine, I'm just going to work 10 minutes with this acetone and the object is too big to go in the fume cupboard. Oh, be fine, be fine. So I think we're particularly bad at, at assessing the risks of things that we use every day and also things that other people also use every day. There's a certain kind of culture of, mm. of saying, well, everyone uses this, it must be okay. Um, and that's not always the case. Yeah, so I um, spoke to Kerith Koss Schrager, who's a conservator that I got into. Well, she contacted me a few months ago because she was doing some research into the safety of cyclododecane, which is something that I was particularly interested in as well. And 
she spoke to me about her uh, research into hazards and the kind of culture of hazard assessment that there is in conservation, how conservators find out about risks, chemical risks and hazards and things, and how they get their information, um, that sort of thing. She's on the she's the co-chair of the AIC, American Institute for Conservation Health and Safety Committee. And uh, so we talked a bit about that. So have a listen. My name is Karek Posh Schrager, and I'm an objects conservator in private practice in New York City. I'm a former chair of the AIC Health and Safety Committee. And my interest in health and safety comes from the fact that before I was a conservator, I was actually on my way to get a doctorate degree in public health. And so um, once I started getting into uh, internships in conservation, I decided I wanted to go to conservation school instead. But I really saw a huge difference in how people deal with health and safety in museums than what I experienced when I was working in labs and hospitals. So the thing I wanted to talk to you about was your presentation at the AIC annual meeting this year. So we used cyclododecane as an example to sort of look at how conservators find and interpret health and safety information. In some ways, it represents every chemical we use in that, you know, there really isn't any exposure data for how conservators use chemicals, including, you know, acetone, methanol, like we use them in really strange and unusual ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in other ways, it was totally unique because when you talk to people about cyclododecane, they get really excited. They consider it something sort of, you know, mystifying and wonderful. And we were really interested in it because we were seeing workshops and presentations where people were just, you know, they were spraying it all over everything and they were just letting it sublime into storage areas and public spaces. And there didn't really seem to be a concern with health and safety. Whereas if you said you were going to spray any other chemical all over an object and just let it evaporate and sublime, I think people would have a concern about that. So we really wanted to look into it and and understand not just how people dealt with cyclodecane, but how they dealt with just chemicals in general and how, if they did find health and safety information, um, how that affected their treatment decisions and working conditions. So what conclusions did you come to? So you had you had written a great paper, uh, you know, in <laughs> Thank you. which was almost 10 years ago now. And we did a lot of research and really there was nothing new since you had done your paper, which is not surprising because it's considered an industrial chemical. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at it across the broad view of workers in, you know, around the world, there aren't a lot of people like conservation doesn't show up on the radar mm-hmm. of industry. So there's absolutely no health and safety information on how conservators use it. For conservators, because we're applying it and then letting it sublime, the primary thing is breathing it in. And for cyclodecane, there's no toxicological information on breathing it in because that's not how people would be exposed to it in the way that it's supposed to be used, which is an intermediate chemical in another process. So we did all this research and the grand conclusion we came to is there's no way to know whether it's good or bad. We can't say it's good, we can't say it's bad. There's just no way. But what we found in also doing this research was a couple other interesting things. So we did a survey of the AIC membership and we got about 240 responses, which isn't huge, but it's actually pretty impressive for a health and safety survey, to be honest. And um, we, we 
totally understand the limitations of these kinds of self-surveys. Like you're asking people to voluntarily participate and people will generally, when it comes to health and safety, make themselves sound better than they actually do. So we specifically (laughs) specifically ask people to be very honest about like, not what you think you should do, but what you actually do. We wanted to ask people if they felt that they had good access to health and safety information. And surprisingly, it was a higher number than I thought it would be. Like about 75% said that they thought that they had good access to health and safety information, which still leaves one in four people feeling like they're, you know, they don't, which is not good Mm -hmm. either. But then we wanted to figure out if that was really true. Like were people really having the access to health and safety information that they thought that they were. And the way that we tried to figure that out was we asked them if they knew about the globally harmonized system for hazard communication. Employers were supposed to tell and train their employees on this new system by the end of 2016, I think. So really, conservators should know this stuff, especially if they're working in an institution. So when we asked people if they knew about this, Um, globally harmonized system of of hazard communication, 55% said that they did, which was a huge difference between the 75% of people who said that they had good access to health and safety information. And so, you know, we thought maybe a good number of those were private practice people who who probably really don't have a good way of finding out about this information. But that's a concern that even if people are using health and safety professionals, maybe they're not getting the kind of information that they need to know. We see that as a common problem, even with the health and safety professionals that we work with on the health and safety committee, they don't know what conservators are doing. Like they don't understand how we use these materials in strange ways. So the health and safety committee has created this partnership with the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Part of this relationship is educating the health and safety professionals on what we do in museums, what we do with collections. And then also educating conservators on how to talk to these people about what they're doing. The Health and Safety Committee likes to see ourselves as an interpreter between the two groups, because a lot of times you'll hear health and safety professionals saying, you have to do this, you have to do this. And it's not practical for conservation. One of the projects that I'm working on now is creating a guide for portable fume extractors. And these are things that conservators, particularly in private practice, really rely heavily on. And if you talk to health and safety professionals, they really don't like them. Like they really discourage people from using them. But conservators are going to use them. And like it's, it's the only choice that they have if you're working in your home or you're working in a studio with no windows. So can we come up with a way to responsibly teach conservators how to use these in a way that the health and safety professionals will find acceptable? So just out of interest, why don't they like portable fume extractors? Unless you're um, really, really conscious of changing out the filters, you could be exposed for a long time. The only way that you would know that it's not actually working is you start to smell your chemical. So at that point, you could have had a significant exposure because there's no way to measure whether or not your filter is done. And these machines generally just um, recirculate air into the room. So you've potentially recirculated a lot of contaminated air before you knew you were even being exposed. Um, So if you can, for example, vent them out a window or, you know, set up a ventilation that takes the exhaust and vents it to another space, then you're much better off. Um, but you really have to be really diligent about monitoring how often you use them and keeping track of when you change out your filters. I think that's a great example, actually, of the kind of practical compromises that conservators have to make, because it's all very well saying, well, 
these aren't particularly great and they may not necessarily protect you. You may not know if you're being exposed. But as you said, conservators don't often have other options. Right. And it's also it's also making informed decisions. Right. So if you like if you are aware of the risks, then you can decide if that's the risk you want to take. You know, <laughs> when we asked people whether or not a material was hazardous, affected their treatment decisions. Um, most people said that they like about 60 percent said that they take the health and safety into consideration. But if it's the best treatment for their object, then they're going to. So, I mean, at most most things, if you take proper precautions, you can virtually eliminate the risk. Right. So if you can work in a hood, um, you know, if you can wear a respirator, if you wear gloves, you know, these kind of things, you can you can reduce or eliminate your risk. I think people maybe don't know that not all gloves are the same. And so, you know, like nitrile gloves, which we find everywhere in conservation labs, have almost no protection against acetone. They're great for like, if you're using acetone on a swab, like, and you're not really touching it, but as soon as you get the acetone in contact with that nitrile glove, it has very little protection for you. So one of the things you talked about in your AIC talk was this health and safety culture. Um, And you, I think, identified some ways in which conservation was quite specific in that sense, quite weird. <laughs> yeah, so part of our survey was we asked people whether or not they thought, thought, back to cyclododecane, whether or not they thought cyclododecane was safe. And what was surprising was 48% said that they thought it was not safe, and then 18% or so said that they thought it was safe, and then the rest didn't have an opinion, so or couldn't come to a conclusion. And so that was really surprising to us because when we did our literature review, like almost every paper said that it was safe. So, which was surprising for us to come back and have people say, no, we actually do think it's hazardous when we ask them the question. Yeah. So we asked people why they thought it was safe or not safe. And so we saw that a majority in both cases came to that conclusion because they saw other people using it or they read about other people using it. And it was a much lower percent, like less than 20% that actually came to that conclusion from reading the safety data sheet. So people are following learned behavior, which isn't unusual for conservation. I think that happens everywhere and every, you know, every health and safety culture, that's probably an issue. What was really kind of dramatic for us was that people were overemphasizing their concern for the object and not at all discussing their concern for their own health and safety. When I did interviews, a lot of people would say things like, well, you know, the smell's not that bad, so I don't really worry about it. And and smell is a really not a good indicator of toxicity, Um, you know, and so they'd just be like, well, we, you know, I aired out the room. But if I was working with somebody else, like I would have been much more careful, like I would have worn a respirator. (laughs) And so you see a lot of people being like, well, I don't do this for myself, but if I have a subordinate, then I make them do it. And so there's a recognition that there's a hazard. And a lot of people would say, uh, well, it's too late for me. Like, I'm too old and I'm about to retire. But like, you're young. (laughs) You should do it. So peer pressure is potentially uh, one of the things that encourages compliance with health and safety. Right. And so creating a a culture where people feel comfortable about talking about health and safety. Um, and And I think sort of setting up from the top down, a good health and safety culture is really important. So I'm fascinated by this because kind of by definition, conservators tend to be quite diligent 
and obviously uh, not necessarily prone to taking shortcuts. We're used to things being quite kind of onerous and doing it properly and so on. So it seems fascinating to me that on the one hand, you could have this uh, huge care for the object and the object's well-being, and at the same time have so little regard for your own health. Yeah, and I think what's happening is it's, you know, if you don't know that you're that it's an issue, then you don't even know to think about it. So if you're not learning it from the beginning, then um, it's not something that you realize is missing. So I think people understand inherently that chemicals have hazards, but I don't think you necessarily recognize that maybe the materials that you're using or the objects themselves could be potentially dangerous to you as well, um, or that your work practice practices could be dangerous. You know, lots of there's lots of conservators that climb up on ladders, and you know, <laughs> it's not just chemical hazards. It's one of the other things that I wanted to talk about that we found about in our doing our research, and it was something that was a revelation to me as I was doing this research was that I really didn't understand what a safety data sheet was, mm-hmm. and I really didn't understand the limitations and what it was actually telling me until I started really looking at different safety data sheets and and understanding where they come from and what they do. And that's not something you ever learn. People just say, look at the safety data sheet and they will tell you if it's safe or not safe, which is absolutely yeah. <laughs> not safe. And I think there's a misinterpretation by people that if there's no data, that means it's safe, right? Yeah. So, so if it's not saying that it's not safe, then it's safe, which is, which is absolutely not true. It means that no one's ever done a study on it, so they can't say either way. My impression of safety data sheets before I started looking into them was that there was some kind of general repositories where if the manufacturer was selling acetone, they sort of plucked it from there and then, you know, yeah. printed it out. <laughs> and sort of, which is, is not what happens. And, you know, each manufacturer comes up with their own safety data sheet. So you could have the same chemical from different manufacturers having different information on it. What's interesting is if you look at the safety data sheet for B72, it says mm-hmm. that it's a reproductive hazard. But I think you have to look at why it's saying it's a reproductive hazard. So if you look, the 100% resin contains less than 1% of toluene in it. And that's Ah, why it's saying it's a reproductive hazard because it's giving you the safety information for toluene, right? (laughs) If you you look at the breakdown for it says acrylic resin, not hazardous, and then it says toluene, you know, and, and if you look further into the safety data sheet, it's giving you all the horrible things that are associated with toluene, like we all know. But is that is that 1% of toluene in the amount that B72 is used by conservators and the way that B72 is used by conservators, is that actually a concern? Like, should we really be concerned about that? And then, you know, is it more or less of a hazard than the solvent that you're using to, you know, sure. <laughs> If you, you know, if you look at something like naphthalene, it's what's found in mothballs. So people used to put naphthalene all over things. Now we know that there's some serious health risks associated with it. And there's also serious sort of long-term effects on objects that have been treated with it or been exposed to it. So um, I think part of the solution is, is, again, getting people to recognize that there are unknown health and safety risks associated with these materials that we're using early on and treating them early on as being hazardous so that they don't over time just generally get accepted as safe without any understanding that they're really safe. Like what happened, like no one looks at the 
you know, the safety data sheet for B72 anymore. You just use it. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you if you start out sort of assuming that something is hazardous instead of automatically assuming that something is safe, then I think that helps things a lot. So if we approach our own health and safety the way that we approach treatment of our objects, like we don't use something on an object until we've tested it and made sure that it's okay. So we should be doing the same thing for ourselves, you know, sort of assuming that something is not safe until we can prove otherwise. Another reason I think people are sort of a little bit more blasé about health and safety and conservation is there's not many people that you can say got sick from working, right? So I can't say that I know anyone who died from being a conservator. <laughs> um, you can say lots of people die from being construction workers and lots of people die from working in factories that use mercury all the time. So, you know, there are lots of people who worked in as with asbestos, you know, so I think when you don't see that there are health effects happening, mm-hmm. then you don't really have the urgency to take the precautions that you need to be taking. Um, sure. I mean, I, I, there are many hundreds or thousands of times as many people working in construction as there yeah. are in conservation. And also we don't have a formal way of recording right. uh, so, the long-term so health effects. Yeah. So that's another thing we were trying to look at is like, is there a way that we can um, see you know, are there higher levels of incidence of cancer among conservators, you know, but that kind of study is just is so in depth and so difficult that, you know, it's something that AIC would really have to invest in, or have a group that would be really willing to invest in it with us. And that was one of the survey questions that we asked if people would be interested in those kinds of studies, um, whether or not there's increased health effects among conservators as a group, and whether or not, you know, certain exposure studies for certain chemicals, and overwhelmingly, like almost every single person was like, yes, (laughs) we need that. (laughs) I'm just wondering how you get information through to conservators working in private practice who don't often have the luxury of taking unpaid time off to go on on courses and so on. So the health and safety committee is pretty active. Like we we have our um, AIC newsletter that gets published five times a year and we always try and have an article, a substance article in there that's really sort of on a conservation health and safety topic. And then we do periodical things like so I'm doing that the fume extractor guys which will be separate. And then we try and do sort of these e-blasts to like, you know, because a lot of times we'll be like, wouldn't it be great if you guys did an article on reproductive health and conservation? And we're like, we did it already. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if you had a a chart that told you which gloves you could use? And we're like, here it is. We did it already. So so the, the issue is like, we can't, you know, we can give you all this information, like we can't make you read it, right? So there's only so much we can do to get people out information out to people. My co-chair and I were both in private practice. So, you know, we were really aware of the kind of issues that people have in private practice, um, particularly if you're working in your home and your kids are around. Sure. What What's next with your research? Are you going to publish this? Are you going to sort of follow it up with more research? Well, so our um, our PowerPoint presentation will be available online. So that'll be available, I think, in September. I'm hoping to sort of publish a more in-depth look at our results from our survey as sort of like going through it and seeing what was statistically significant and sort of coming some bigger conclusions from, because it was a, you know, 20 question survey. So there was a lot of stuff to sort of put together. So the one thing that I really would like to see is I do want to see something on safety data sheets, something that really lets people know 
how to read safety data sheets, what their limitations are, how you should interpret them as a conservator. So I think that's one of the projects that's sort of up on the agenda to be done. And then uh, we also, with this collaboration and partnership with the American Industrial Hygiene Association, we're really looking into a lot of different programs to get sort of formal health and safety training for conservators and what kind of resources can um, health and safety professionals, because they have a lot more teaching tools than AIC does for this particular type of stuff. So if we can use their resources to help our membership, that's really great. Well, Kareth Kostrager, thank you very much for talking to The C Word today. Thank you. It was great having me. Thank you. Right. So um, I feel like it's particularly poignant that she kind of brings up the same the same thing that there's this um attitude amongst conservatives that maybe it's all right if i don't wear a mask but if there's someone else in the room with me or if i'm (laughs) supervising someone then we all better wear masks (laughs) i i kind of love that because i recognize myself in it and that i will be slightly stricter if there's someone else with me which is weird it's my health for goodness sake why am i not more cautious i think i've found not the opposite but a different attitude of um of almost you know people who are again more familiar with the risk they're less bothered essentially and they won't wear wear a mask they've said of course you wear a mask if you feel like it um but then a sort of not as as uh we've just heard in the in, in the interview um a sort of well i I can't be bothered, but um, you should be worried about your health because you're young. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm too far gone now. I'm Although <laughs> I find it interesting because I feel like uh, we've both probably experienced this, that we've flagged up a risk and gone, can we wear a mask for this task? And people who seem to be our age still seem to go, well, I wouldn't really wear one, but fine, I guess you can, which is a more rare attitude. But I would... Yeah, it's really hard because it's kind of an implicit criticism of the other person. Yeah, which is taking it seriously enough. I I guess, yeah, exactly. But it's never meant like that. Like for me, for example, maybe I know that I have an underlying condition. For example, if I was asthmatic, I would probably be very keen to to wear some sort of respirator for whenever I was near chemicals or fumes of any kind. So it might just be that I'm approaching it from a I've risk assessed this for myself because, and and I think I need this because yeah. of the underlying reason that I'm not going to tell you because it's none of your business. You know, like yeah. And in the same way, I when I'm dealing with chemicals, I have an extremely strong sense of smell, um, and I find I can find working with some chemicals quite overwhelming. So I will wear a mask because I'm you know aware that I don't want to make myself more sensitive to certain things, or I just essentially just don't want to feel sick for two hours. Um, so I will maybe go at OTT in some people's eyes in terms of um, respiratory PPE um, and that's never never a comment on somebody else's behaviour or what I think somebody else will something will happen yeah, yeah, to somebody yeah. else but I think there, there, there can be a bit of a sort of accusatory a perception of accusatory uh, a perception of a perception of oh, no, of accusation. A, I accusa- think yeah, yeah. accusation. Yeah, perception of accusation um, that another person who is not observing various 
PP opportunities um, is being flippant or unsafe or whatever because essentially yes we have rules and uh, for certain the, the for certain cases the rules will need to be observed but it is everyone's personal choice yeah so basically people can want to use PP for all sorts of strange reasons that you might not know about so nobody should take it as a criticism it's ultimately about ourselves and what we're comfortable with so it's interesting i, I was going to say i think it's interesting though that you we it's that way around that we feel we have to justify wanting to wear it rather than people feeling they have to justify opting out of it yeah um and i think in some ways we are quite cavalier about these things um one of the things kareth was looking at was how there's often a presumption that if there's no information about a chemical that it's therefore it's safe <laughs> you know in a kind of well surely they would tell us if it was dangerous but actually sometimes it's just that, that there's 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 thousands she says roughly a hundred thousand commercial chemicals um, they haven't looked at all of them no and they certainly um, haven't looked at all of them in all particular contexts and no, the way quite. that we use things in conservation often means that we're exposed to risks that just aren't there for other people um i particularly she sent me her presentation i particularly love the line um that she says several circumstances make conservators unique health and safety cases the first <laughs> is that we know that conservators use weird stuff to do weird things and i think that perfectly sums it up um that often we're using these things in ways that nobody would think they would be used and so nobody's even thought to see if this is actually an inhalation risk or whatever uh, yeah, which is and- why we were talking about cyclodidocaine yeah, exactly. And also, if you do look at material sa- safety data sheets, which she did bring up, can be very different for different manufacturers. Um, mm. Quite often, if you do properly really read them, it'll say no information or no mm. research found uh, in a lot of these cases. So it's just a case of, well, we don't know. So we haven't said anything about it, um, which is which is probably not, it's not what, safe. <laughs> yeah, that's not what we take away from it. We go, oh, that's fine then. Not, mm. um, not the the Cristobia risk, which it's very blue sky thinking of conservators to go. <laughs> well, there's no information, so everything's fine. This <laughs> is, in a sense, quite rare for conservators. We tend to be thinking about all of the things that could possibly be going wrong at each time, and actually, yeah, but when it d- comes to our personal health, we're yeah. like, yeah, but it's probably fine, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, quite <laughs> <We'll be> fine. <laughs> And I, I did also love that she did say that um, it would be good if bodies like the AIC could do health and safety research or commission a piece where... I think that's incredibly important. It really that's is. Really, and really I would point. personally love if our professional body, so ICON, would also do that because that is a massive piece of research that is actually profoundly important uh, if you think about it. Well, it's interesting that AIC has a health and safety specialty group, um, that's interest true. group, and ICON doesn't. No, that's true. Which um, is and a good so point. there's a bit of a bit of a gap there, um, yeah. and I think we should be filling it. And it is it, it. I suppose arguably some of this stuff is dealt with by the other um, interest groups and possibly by care of collections as well. But I think it goes beyond that. It would be really good to have that as a yeah, as particular agreed. area of focus. Definitely agreed. <clears throat> particularly find- because the other oh sorry, particularly because the other issue is is that of kind of getting reliable information not just word of mouth from other conservators and not just i've seen people doing this but actually having someone who's responsible for looking at how conservators use particular chemical hazards in particular contexts and then assessing what actually are the risks 
from those and what is the reliable information we can get not just i think it's safe or you know but you know how how likely are you um to be at risk from using white spirit to clean a painting in a confined room for six hours a day for example Mm. um so i think that's the kind of thing that can only really be done by um a professional body yeah the funding needs to be available um and i think it'd be interesting also to just open up the conversation broader to large institutions that have the power and the audience to gain to to, uh, access data so i found particularly interesting the the idea of all maybe do can are is there a higher rate of cancer in conservation it's not something that we're you know any smaller project is going to be able to find out it has to be a sort of overarching Mm. body um that can identify potential potential results of the hazards that we're faced with because otherwise we can say well we know that there is this amount of research as you said for other uh industries of this rate of of um certain illnesses but we don't know at all on how we're using certain chemicals um what effect that has yeah so that's that's definitely something that really should be tackled and i think something that should be tackled quite soon because it's going to be a long-term study and you know if we're going to have any use of it it kind of needs to happen it's worth saying i think we've probably got better i think we're oh yeah science in general and science knowledge hazard knowledge has got and uh, workplace exposure limits has got all of this has got a lot better so this isn't a sort of alarmist um, section of the podcast in any way it's we are much better than we were and we know we know old conservators you know they've they've not all died age 35 you know (laughs) so it's you know that's not to say that there's not a hat there's not a risk but that we are in a, a much better place than we were it would just be to be you know scientists about it we need to have data and we need to be fully aware of the hazards that we are facing so that we can just mitigate them yeah absolutely and uh, to be fair we no longer live in like an information poverty era where you know it was difficult to get information if anything we live in the opposite world now where information is plentiful might not necessarily be exactly what we want but information is out there if you're willing to look and there's always the possibility of generating more information. We'll get together some uh, useful resources about health and safety for conservators and we'll put them in the show notes. Brilliant. If you've got any comments, questions uh, or corrections, as always, we're really happy to hear from you. This time we just wanted to uh, say thank you to everyone who wrote in uh, in response to our Raspberry Pi episode with their Arduino projects. Now, the Arduino is a microcontroller motherboard, which sounds scary. So it's similar but different to the Raspberry Pi. Basically, it's a similar piece of technology, but it's simpler. It can do one thing at a time. Uh, So repetitive tasks, it's very good at uh, for programming. And loads of people have written in with great collections care ideas and projects and research they're doing involving it. And thank you to everyone. We might try to do something special on it in season three or something, because it seems like there's an awful lot of you who'd love to talk to us, which is brilliant. Uh, So we just want to say thank you for that. As always, we love hearing from you. So please do write in. Patreon shout out. 
Welcome to our new patrons, Sora, Christine and Naomi. Welcome guys. As always, if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can do so too. If you just go to patreon.com slash the C word. Thanks for listening. We're the C word and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jen Mathiason. Special thanks to our three guests. Join us next time for an episode about education and learning. In the meantime, you can check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by DD Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.